Welcome to Sure Foundation Lutheran's podcast channel. If you'd like more content like this, or if you'd like more information about Sure Foundation Lutheran Church, visit us on our website at surechurch.com. This sermon is based on Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 to 43, and it was preached on October 18th, 2020. Grace, mercy, and peace are yours through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The Bible is the most intricately interconnected book in the history of the world. <laughs> that statement comes as no surprise to you who are sitting in a church and listening to a pastor, but believe me, that statement is true. In no other book is there real-life prophecy that was made a thousand years prior that a thousand years later was fulfilled. And not only that, every prophecy that has been made in Scripture has either been fulfilled or will be fulfilled. And this is probably not the last time you're going to see this photo, I promise. Let me describe a little bit about what's going on here. The bottom of this graph represents each chapter of the Bible. And you can see them represented here by the length of each chapter. And then you can see the beginning of the arc and the end of all of these arcs. Millions of arcs here <laughs> of where a prophecy was made in scripture and where a prophecy was fulfilled. And so of the many things that this picture illustrates, it, it, it illustrates that God is a God who keeps his promises. And it illustrates that the Bible is the most interconnected, intricate book of all time. <laughs> that, that a book that was written over the course of 1600 years by over 40 different authors is so interconnected and it testifies to the truth of Scripture and to the authority of Scripture and the fact that this is truly God's word and not the, the word of just mere men. But prophecy is not the only thing that makes the Bible such an intricate book. The Bible is also a beautiful piece of literature that scattered throughout the Bible are these sections that draw on the history of the past to inform us about the present. There's an excellent example of this in the book of Hebrews, in a section that's called the Hall of Faith. Uh, this is kind of playing off the term Hall of Fame, but it's a Hall of Faith. And this is where the writer to the Hebrews is trying to explain faith to the people and using people of the past to make his point. He's using people like Noah or Abraham or Samson and, and many others to illustrate his point. And this can teach you a lot of different things, but of the many things that it teaches you, it teaches you that nothing happens on accident, that events are not an accident, that people are not an accident, that they all serve a, a purpose, and God can use the events and people of the past to teach and bring blessings even into the present. And today's gospel is an example of one of those sections. In a parable... Jesus relays the history of the Israelites. It's a picturesque way of talking about his history, but Jesus isn't just doing this to, to entertain us or, or to wow us with his creativity. He's seeking to teach the people of his day. He's seeking to teach us that he is a God with a pattern of patience. And so listen to this parable from Jesus in Matthew chapter 21, starting at verse 33. Jesus says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. 
The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants, who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to him, Have you never read in the scriptures, The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. This is God's word. This owner went all out. If he was going to plant a vineyard, he was going to do it 100%. And this vineyard was fully loaded. It had everything it needed to be productive. It had a wall that, that the owner built around it to protect the crops, to protect it, protect it from thieves, to protect it from hungry animals, from, from armies that would come in. It was protected from the outside world. It, it had a wine press where the grapes would be smashed and stored in vats that were dug into the ground. So that meant that they didn't have to go outside of the vineyard to produce their wine, but everything was able to be produced inside of his vineyard. He even built a watchtower as an added safety feature that that maybe even had housing for his workers. This vineyard was fully loaded and it was ready to be productive. It had everything going for it. All it needed was workers. So the owner found workers. These were farmers who, who rented his vineyard. He entrusted the vineyard to them and then he left. And because this was a rental situation, it was understood that the renters would have to pay rent to the owner of the vineyard. That's typically how it works, right? Which in this case would be paid in some crop that they had harvested. So the owner sends some of his servants to pick up the rent from these farmers. It seems like they probably, he probably sent one servant at a time. This is a, a gospel that's recorded in two other books, in the book of Mark and the book of Luke. And, and it seems like from those gospels that the, the three servants that were sent initially were maybe sent staggered. And so he sends these three servants, and not wanting to pay rent, these workers in the vineyard, they, they beat one of them. They killed another one, and they stoned a third. This is kind of an escalation. So the, the stoning of the third was probably uh, leading to death, too, for, for this servant. But the owner isn't quite done. He's, he's not quite done trying to reach out and get his rent because since they killed the servants, they were not giving up their rent to them, obviously. And so he, he finds some more servants. And he sends more of them. It says he sends even more to go collect the rent from the renters. But the renters had committed to their plan. They, they treated the servants the same way. They beat some, killed some, stoned some, generally abused the servants. On two different occasions, the owner sent multiple servants to these people to urge them to pay their rent, but they refused. And so the owner came up with a plan for a third try. He's persistent. Give him that. 
He says, I'll send my son. Surely they will respect my son. So the, the son goes to the renters. And all the renters can see is dollar signs. <laughs> they, in their own twisted way, believe that if they can kill the son, then they will gain the inheritance of the vineyard. That they will be able to take possession of the vineyard. So they do just that. They, they take the son, they throw him out of the vineyard, and they kill him. So this is now two times that you've heard this parable. This is exactly what Jesus is saying to a large crowd of people on Palm Sunday. This is not exactly what you normally think of when you think of Palm Sunday, right? You think of a little different scene when you think of Palm Sunday. But Jesus is saying this on Palm Sunday during the week of the the Passover. And so this is something that he is saying to a large crowd of people. Jerusalem swelled to millions of people at the time of the Passover. It it tripled in size. And so people would stay in surrounding towns, but they would all come to Jerusalem during the day and, and the streets would be packed. It was shoulder to shoulder there. And so Jesus is talking to a large crowd of people that also happens to contain the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the teachers of the law. These were were Jewish leaders at the time, religious leaders who despised Jesus. Over the course of Jesus' three-year ministry, their hatred for Jesus gained (laughs) uh, infinite levels of hate. They really did not like him. And Jesus was reaching a new level of hate with the Pharisees at this current occasion because prior to this Jesus had entered Jerusalem on a donkey and he was greeted as a king people waved palm branches they laid them down before him they they laid their coats down before him and they greeted him by saying hosanna to the son of david not only that but just before this parable Jesus told another parable whose main point was this that the prostitutes and the tax collectors the lowest of the low in society are entering the kingdom of God before Pharisees, Sadducees, and, tech, and, and teachers of the law. This was unbelievable to, to these teachers of the law, to these Jewish leaders. They could not believe what they had seen in Jesus being received as a king. They couldn't believe what Jesus was saying to them. And now Jesus is very obviously telling them a parable that is directed at them. This parable is a direct story of the the history of the Israelites. God had called Abraham and chosen him, chosen him to inherit the land of Israel. At that time, it was called Canaan. He had promised this land to Abraham and his descendants. And he told Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. And these descendants from Abraham, who were God's chosen people, later were known as the Israelites. And as God's chosen people, they were richly blessed by God. God saved them in a dramatic fashion from the Egyptians. He sent 10 plagues. He split the Red Sea in two and he saved them from the Egyptians and slavery in Egypt. And he saved them there. That's what the Passover was celebrating in the first place. And then, a little bit later, he stops the the running of the Jordan so that they can cross into that promised land that God had promised to Abraham. And once they were in the promised land, God defeated all of their enemies. God continually blessed the Israelites. And throughout the course of history, he sent them his servants. These servants were also known as prophets. Prophets. 
People who were carrying God's word to God's people. And their their consistent message was urging people to repent, to, to produce fruits of repentance, to produce fruits of faith. Because if they had faith, they would be producing fruits of that faith. They, they urged these people to, to repent and to turn to the promise of the Messiah for salvation. And yet, time and time again, the people rejected these prophets. They beat them. They killed them. They stoned them. They reject God and his word. God and his messengers. But God was not done reaching out to his people. What did God do? He, he sent more. <laughs> he sent more servants to his people. He sent people like Isaiah and Jeremiah. He sent people like John the Baptist to urge people to repent and to turn back to him for salvation. To, to turn back to the promise of the Savior for salvation. And yet they still rejected these prophets. They beat some. They killed some. They stoned some. And they beheaded some, just like John the Baptist. And so what did God do? He sent his son. Surely they will listen to my son. And Jesus was born of a virgin. And Jesus had a three-year ministry where he preached to the people, where he taught the people, where he took care of the people, where he healed the people. He performed many miracles for the people. Yet what did they do? They put him on a cross and put him to death there. History has not looked fondly on the Jewish people for that. Because they were the ones. They were the ones who arrested Jesus and gave him an unfair trial. They were the ones who had had him beaten within inches of his life. They were the ones who had him nailed to the cross where he died a slow, painful death. They were the ones. They were the ones to blame. Yet, brothers and sisters, if we truly believe that, if we truly believe that the Jews were the only reason that Jesus was hanging on the cross, then we are in danger of losing the kingdom of God as well. It is so incredibly important in Scripture, in sections of Scripture like this, to see your own heart. To see your own heart in the vineyard workers. To see your own heart in the, in the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law. Sure, your heart has different manifestations today, but it's still the same sinful heart as those vineyard workers, as the Pharisees, Sadducees, and the teachers of the law. And if you fail to see your own heart then you are in danger of slipping into pride. A prideful heart is the one that hears the rebuke of the law in the word and says, Pastor, that was a great message. They really needed to hear that today. Those people out there, they really needed to hear that today. Rather than saying, I really needed to hear that today. Pride is so dangerous. It's dangerous because those who are prideful are tricked into believing that they don't need God. Pride can push God out of your life to the point where you're unable to see that every sin that we commit is a rejection of God and his word. Just like the Israelites rejected God and his word, so our sin is a rejection of God and it's his word. It blinds us to the stark realities of our own sin. We fail to recognize that with every sin we do or fail to do, 
We are explicitly saying to God, what you have commanded is not good. I am above your word. I will do this or say this anyways. And with every sin, we have beaten the word, killed the word, and stoned the word. With every sin, we have driven the nails in Jesus' hands in a bit further. Our sin makes us responsible for killing the Son of God. And the consequences are severe. At the end of the parable, Jesus says, What will he do to those tenants? The Jewish leader said, He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants. And later Jesus says, Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people who will produce fruit. Don't let sin reign in your life, brothers and sisters. Repent. Don't let the kingdom of God be taken from you, but protect it. We protect it by seeing our own sin clearly, seeing our own heart clearly, rather than hearing the message of the law and saying those people really needed to hear it, say, I really need to hear it and hear it often. And then, and then see God's heart, his patient heart. Over the course of history, God sent his word to his people who consistently rejected him. Yet what did God do? He kept sending his word. He kept reaching out. Many years of rejection passed, but God continued to renew his promises in his word. His reaching out was still met with rejection, but your God is persistent, consistent, and patient in love. He kept sending his word to his people. And eventually he sent his only son to his people, whom was also rejected and killed. But, but Jesus flipped the script here. Scripture was fulfilled in this happening and forgiveness was won. Jesus says, the stone the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. God turned rejection into salvation. He made the cornerstone of eternal life the death of his only son. It says he has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. <laughs> and just a note here that this is another example of a prophecy being fulfilled in Jesus. Psalm 118 records these words and it's fulfilled in Jesus. Chances are you probably don't know a ton of famous psychiatrists out there unless you have studied in that field. But there is a woman named Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and she's a, a pretty famous psychiatrist. She became famous after writing a book called On Death and Dying in 1969. Now, you maybe don't know who she is. You maybe never heard of her book, but you likely have heard of one of the things that she came up with. She came up with the five stages of grief. You see it in popular media all over the place today. The five stages of grief are... Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And to me, it's always been interesting that denial is the first stage. It's interesting, but it also kind of makes sense when you think about it a little bit. If you are feeling an overwhelming amount of one emotion, <laughs> that you, you feel like you can't even deal with this emotion, that it's so overwhelming, it makes sense that as a self-preservation technique, 
you would deny, deny, deny as a natural human response to protect ourselves from psychologically dangerous situations. We deny. And there's kind of a connection here. The guilt of knowing that we put Jesus on the cross, that's overwhelming. The shame that we feel over killing the Son of God, that's a guilt and shame that is crushing. And as a natural protective measure of our human nature, we could deny, deny, deny. But because the stone that we rejected has become the capstone, the cornerstone, we no longer need to deny. The crushing guilt and shame has been removed. Jesus turned rejection into salvation for you. He has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Here's what that means for you. It means that we don't have to roll out our sins as if we are proud of them, but we also don't have to pretend they don't exist. We don't have to pretend they don't exist and believe that we are are perfect or righteous on our own because Jesus has done that for us. Jesus has forgiven our sins and taken the guilt and shame of our sins away. Jesus has made us righteous. There is no more guilt and shame in your life. God has been consistent in his pattern of patience with us. And he'll continue to send us his word. He'll send it through pastors, through teachers, through devotionals, through Christian family and friends. He will keep reaching out to us. Because as long as Jesus is your cornerstone, brothers and sisters, the kingdom of God will never be taken from you. Amen.